You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, welcome to the show. Recording out of Studio 2 at 3CR. Great to be back uh, in the studios here, away from the farm. And this week we are joined by Jeff Davies. Many of you will know him from his uh, website, betternature.wordpress.com. And uh, also as uh, a rather prolific author, he's recently released the Little Green Economics book. Uh, Shortly before that was Desperately Seeking a Fair Go. Uh, The Rise and Failure of the Radical Right, and uh, a personal favourite for all renegade economists here, Sack the Economist. So, Jeff, uh, welcome back on the show. It must be uh, three or so years since you've been here, and it was good to bump into you at the New Economics Network of Australia conference over the weekend. Yeah, it was uh, quite uh, a gathering of thought purveyors. So, Jeff, uh, what was your takeaway theme from uh, the New Economics Network conference? Um, yeah, um, it was my first time at that conference and gathering, and I found them very diverse and really engaging a lot with each other. It was very encouraging, in fact, that uh, such a diversity of people really came and were hearing each other and exchanging lots of ideas. One of the big themes at the conference was uh, degrowth. Now, uh, where do you sit on the paradigm when it comes to degrowth? I'm in complete sympathy with the idea, but I don't like the framing, um, the the use of the words. Yes, I agree. Because too often growth, people don't say what they're talking about when they say growth, growth of what? And my cut-through thought is uh, if we distinguish quantity from quality. So we need to reduce quantity of stuff that we use and dump back in the earth and we can still indefinitely improve quality of our lives and things. And that's the way the living world has been working for a long time. So, yeah, I just think we need to be clear and not just say growth. We need to talk about growth of what? I agree entirely. Uh, big supporters of steady state economics uh, where we're using nature's resources in a sustainable manner. We aren't depleting the, uh, the natural stock of nature's resources, but uh, the degrowth term is disarming. It's never going to cut it with uh, the right-leaning type uh, mainstream approach. And for me, when uh, you hear from the IPCC that we've got uh, barely 12 years left to uh, reboot the economy on this sustainable sort of paradigm, I'm all for 10% green growth. Green growth? So what does that mean? Good question. Well, I mean, that's where we have uh, the carbon taxes in place and the greener industries are the ones that are growing because uh, the brown industries are deterred and yeah. uh, we get this whole growth in the sectors we really need and that is uh, one of the key 
outcomes for any form of new economy is uh, rebadging this economy as, as rapidly as possible so that we can get on to the sort of steady state footing we, we're after. Yeah, well, I think and certainly reducing the brown and increasing the green, I don't actually have a schedule. I think a lot of it can be done very rapidly. We're doing things in such a poor and contrary way at the moment that it's not hard. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit, I think. So your uh, most recent book, uh, The Little Green Economics Book, uh, what motivated you to write that and uh, give us a, a pricey on, on what this book is all about? If you say economics to a lot of people, their eyes glaze over with good reason because there's so much confusing rubbish talked about ec- economics and, in fact, the whole discipline, the mainstream discipline, is really pseudoscience. It's got no firm basis. And I get frustrated because I see good people, including the Greens Party, but others as well, focus on many good issues but sort of hold back from the main game. And unfortunately, in our existing world, the economy is the main game. It's been made the driver of everything, and all their other good causes aren't going to progress properly until we address the current economy. And my vision is that it can be actually harnessed to all the good causes. So turn it around instead of it being the huge impediment and destroyer, it can be the powerhouse for a lot of good things. So the Little Green Book is a quick summary of many points where we can do things more sensibly. It's just like three or four pages on a topic and some resources, some sources you can go and look. And it's small enough not to deter people. I hope. Well, it'll deter people less than a 700-page tome. So make the good things accessible, readable, plain language, and hope that more people will get onto these ideas. Jeff Davies, for yourself, what is the primary economic understanding listeners should really grasp? Free market economics is nonsense. It's not working and the theory is just an an irrelevant abstraction. Markets need to be managed. We can manage them. We do often perversely manage them. The, The easy way to manage them, well, the straightforward way, is to control the financial incentives under which they operate. And, you know, that's the idea behind putting a price on burning carbon, for example, make that more expensive, use the the income from that to subsidise the clean things and accelerate the shift to clean energy. But all markets, we need to look at each market segment and say, is it working for our benefit? If it's not, we can devise ways to tweak it so that 
people can make money by doing good things. And so you say all markets there. Are there any particular qualities that you look for when analysing a market? Oh, well, I'm I'm speaking in general, but there's energy, there's transport, there's consumerism in general. I mean, there are many ways in which we're doing things destructively and also many ways in which we can change that. So it's a matter of looking through, you know, the, the very many aspects of a modern economy and, and uh, progressively working to get them working for us. Because uh, last week we had Bruce Robertson from IEFA, one of Australia's leading energy market analysts, and he was talking about the, the danger of regulators such as the ACCC talking about the gas market as a free market, whereas really it's uh, a market that has strong oligopolistic uh, tendencies. There's that word that causes uh, so many troubles. So often I call uh, those sort of markets uh, monopoly-type markets. Uh, yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Well, that's an example, Yeah. Anything that's monopoly or close to monopoly with only a few big uh, firms operating, that market needs to be controlled. It needs to be managed so that those people don't gouge us and so that what they do is of general benefit. And certainly the gas market at the moment, the natural gas market, is insane because they're frenetically exporting it, causing a shortage in the domestic market and then say, oh, we'll we'll import some back. I mean, that's just nuts. Mm. Um, I would mention the electricity market too, which is a pseudo market. You know, we've got this big national electricity grid and because of the current obsession with markets and so-called free markets, they created a pseudo market for electricity and it's working badly and it's being gamed and companies, you know, they, during the South Australian crisis, one of the big plants was shut down so that the price would increase. So I think in the case of monopolies like that, you don't want a market. I'd rather just get a bunch of competent engineers and say, okay, run the grid for us. So I, mean, I just want to clarify that because a lot of people on the left have this uh, antagonistic uh, feeling towards economics and towards free markets. And, and so when someone says, look, all, all markets are uh, ineffective, I, I um, like to push a little deeper because uh, if you don't like markets, uh, the other side to that is you must love meetings. And, uh, you know, how else do we make decisions quickly? I've never been in a meeting where a chairman has been so effective to have made uh, uh, a million decisions a second, microsecond even, and uh, that's where we just need to remind the left that the market system is the fastest way to distribute information through the pricing signal. But for me... The distortions are where those monopolistic uh, powers can encroach 
and where uh, scarcity can be manufactured, uh, such as you mentioned, turning off a power plant during a 40 degree heat wave, prices are naturally going to rise. So uh, today on the front page of the Financial Review, Scott Morrison, the current Prime Minister, has announced that uh, the energy market will be facing tougher regulation and specific uh, price points and deadlines have been given. Just backing up on markets, I mean, there's very good reason for mistrusting markets because they've been abused and abusive for so long because they're manipulated to the advantage of some people. But, you know, back in the post-war years, there was a so-called mixed economy with the government running some things and private enterprise running a lot of other things. And there was quite a lot of intervention in the economy by the government. And as a matter of fact, it worked much better, if you like, GDP growth, it was growing at 5% a year or more. Unemployment was a little over 1%. That's considered impossible these days, but we could do it again. So, yeah, I, I understand that people shrink from the word market and from the word economics, but the fact is markets can be very powerful. They are powerful. My metaphor is that free markets are like wild horses. They're powerful, but if you want to know where they're going to take you, you better tame them and harness them. So that's my conclusion, actually, from looking into how markets are and what a modern economy is. It's a self-organizing system. It can be erratic. It needs to be looked at like a living thing, really. So if... If we get rid of the illusions we have or that we've been fed, that we can just let them run wild and actually start paying attention, I think we can can indeed tame and harness markets and get them doing good things. It's not simple um, and it won't be perfect, but it can be a lot better than what we've got now without much effort. Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist, and this week we're with Jeff Davies, author of the new book, The Little Green Economics Book, and uh, many of you would have read his reading in the Canberra Times, New Matilda, Online Opinion, Independent Australia, all sorts of places. He's uh, been all over the internet and has a Hirsch Index of 40, which means he's uh, produced 40 academic papers with at least 40 citations, which indicates significant international standing. So what is uh, the next most important thing for listeners to, to grasp? Thinking about doing this talk, I made a little list of places in which our, the mainstream understanding of the economy is deficient, and I got to nine and thought I'd better stop. Hmm. Uh, so markets need to be managed. GDP, the gross domestic product, is not a good index of our well-being. It grossly distorts our priorities. The federal budget doesn't need to be balanced. The federal government actually issues money 
and its budget is not like a household budget and there's a quite fundamental misunderstanding there on the part of most people. Let's dive into that one then. Over the weekend, we had a very interesting talk from uh, Stephen Hale on the modern monetary theory type uh, approach. Uh, That's what you're hinting at there with that statement. Could you uh, give a bit of background to this concept in terms of uh, currency sovereignty? Things changed, I think, uh, evidently back in the 70s when governments, they departed from the so-called gold standard. They didn't try to tie the value of their money to an amount of gold. They let it float. And that turned out to change the nature of the the way money is issued and can be issued. And a lot of political and economic thinking hasn't really caught up with that. The basic idea is that the Australian government issues money into circulation, it creates it and spends it via the Reserve Bank. And in fact, it must do that before we can pay our taxes because our taxes have to be paid in that sovereign money. So the, the federal money system works this way. The government must issue and spend money before it can tax it back which is the opposite of a household. A household must earn money before it can spend it. It's a very confused subject because the government also issues bonds and people say, oh, that's the government borrowing and that's bad. And in the current modern situation, it's better to think of a bond as like a a savings account, a deposit certificate, a way of the private sector saving a bit of money and getting some interest. The government doesn't actually have to do that. That's not how it funds what it spends money on. So a fundamental implication is that the government can spend money to make sure the economy is functioning well. And, for example, if you've got 5% unemployment, you could spend more money to stimulate the economy in various ways until unemployment dropped away to more like the 1% it used to be. If you spend too much money, you'll get inflation. But inflation happens when the economy is running at full steam. Well, that's one situation. And at the moment, it's, it's well short of running at full steam. So... You can, in other words, manage the economy for full employment and low inflation. And we know that's possible because that's how it was managed in the 50s and 60s. So there's three of your nine, uh, Jeff Davies. What would be the next three? Oh, I actually touched on full employment. We could promote more shared ownership like co-ops and such because ownership, who owns things in our system, governs who gets the wealth. The old capitalist story is the capitalist rakes in a lot of the wealth. So it's possible for employees to own an enterprise. It's possible actually for a local 
consortium to own an enterprise. There are many ways in which we can have shared ownership. And in that case, the wealth will flow to more people and can, well, if it's well managed, wealth can flow in a fairer way. At present, it's highly skewed to flowing to the wealthy. We've got a pump-up system instead of a trickle-down system. On another topic, the financial sector is wildly out of control. It used to be much more closely managed, and it's parasitic. It sucks wealth out of the productive economy. They play games with it, and they destabilize the economy, and they're a major part of why we have booms and crashes. So uh, that could be reined back in again. Um, I haven't mentioned the private banking system. They sort of have a, a license to print money and they get very wealthy from it. But the, the way the incentives are structured at the moment, the private banks maximise the amount of debt we carry in our society and debt is unstable. It, it's basically a lot of promises and they can go awry and you can have a financial crash. So it's possible to restructure the private banking so that they provide the service of providing currency and financing operations without having the incentive to push more and more and more debt onto us. And that is fundamentally why we have ridiculous housing prices at the moment and enormous amounts of household debt uh, through mortgages. And that's been dangerous for a long time. It was that, that sort of debt that triggered the global financial crisis, which started in America from far too much mortgage debt. We could run things with much less debt and thereby make the economy a lot more stable than it is. We certainly could. And, uh, yeah, I always am concerned by this uh, push under the neoliberal agenda to demonise public debt but uh, uh, encourage private debt, which is much more profitable for the banking industry because public debt, their base, the bank's banking system is excluded from uh, the government's the one who, ta who engages in the borrowing and uh, they're left out of the picture. But with private debt, it is more risky, uh, but it's much more profitable for the banking system. So somehow we need to bring back this understanding of public debt. Now, with MMT and uh, this ability to print money, would there be a growth in national debt with this uh, spending into circulation type procedure? I mean, you can look at it that way, but perhaps it's better to just say the government is investing in the society. And, you know, any firm is advised that it can maximise its prospects by carrying a certain amount of debt, and households commonly have quite a large amount of debt, mortgages, car loans, and so on. So, yeah, we... the. As you said, public debt has been demonised and private debt has been ignored. Well, we could rebalance that and just say, stop fretting about public debt. It's not very high. It's only 
even now, 30 or 40% of GDP versus private debt being 160% or something. And the government is not going to go broke. The federal government is not going to go broke because it can print more money. Now, of course, you don't want it doing that recklessly. There's no reason it would. So we just ought to stop fretting about the fact that the government has issued more money out than it has taxed back in. And that's all the government deficit is. It just means that some money is left in circulation. If that money wasn't there, our whole money system would would stop because the private banking system is piggybacked on the money that the government puts into circulation through its reserve accounts and things. So um, it's it's really a non-issue. We should not fret about the fact that the government has spent more money than it has taken back in taxes. That just means there's some money out so helping to let the economy run. It gives us the money we need to, to do what we do. Yes, well, as long as we have some form of land taxes in place, because MMT does horrify me in a way in that uh, all of this Keynesian-type pump priming into infrastructure and whatnot will lead to ever higher land prices. Oh, well, I agree. That That's also on my list. We hadn't got to that. But, but yeah, land is a special commodity. Uh, there's only so much of it. I'll, I'll put this in modern systems terminology. There is a form of wealth that I call emergent community wealth. If you've got a fish and chip shop and nobody within Cooey, then your fish and chip shop isn't worth much and your land isn't worth much. But if there's a community around you that'll buy fish and chips, then your your land is worth more. And if there's a bus stop or a train station, it's worth more again. The value of your land can be increased by what other things people do around it without you lifting a finger. And I think you know that that's something that Henry George spoke about a hundred and more years ago uh, and has been thoroughly ignored uh, in most many places. That wealth used to be called incremental wealth, so I call it emergent community wealth. It belongs to the community. It only exists because there's a community. It doesn't belong to any individual, yet at present it's siphoned off by landlords and developers and landowners into private pockets. If we use something like a community land trust or well-structured land taxes, you can capture that wealth and feed it back and use it to benefit the whole community. And in fact, we could be funding a lot of community facilities if we made better use of that wealth. So that is, I agree, that that's a crucial thing. And if there's too much money floating around, which there is at present, it just bids up the price of land and you get an insane spiral of property prices. But that can be managed well too. Mm. 
Well, Jeff, uh, thank you so much. That seems like a good place to uh, finish up and uh, I appreciate all the work you're doing to assist people's economic literacy. One of the greatest challenges we have on planet Earth uh, to help people recognise why life is more of a challenge than it should be financially. Thanks a million for listening. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au.